church. The mask is being tricky. Good to see everybody. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 30 this morning. Uh, as you're turning there, I want to welcome you again. Uh, my name is Ben, lead pastor here. We're glad you could join us today if you're our guest. We are walking through the book of Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. Isaiah 30, we're going to look at verses 15 through 18. And while you're turning there, again, we want to encourage you. There, there's a lot of new things that are happening coming up in the fall. We have uh, new grow classes starting, new connect groups starting. It's a great opportunity for us to re-engage and be connected to people, um, even if that is a, a digital or social distance version of that. Uh, we would love for you to still build some relationships and uh, have community in these difficult times. So we would love to have you sign up and find out more about that as you're looking to make Strong Tower um, a home for you. Isaiah chapter 30, verses 15 to, 30, or 15 to 18. Hear the reading of God's word. It says, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. And you said, No, we will flee upon our horses. Therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee. Till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Amen. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the king who waits. The king who waits. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, that you are our king, but not a king who stands over us in judgment because of Christ, but you are a king who stands over us in eagerness, eager to, to pursue us, eager to uh, give grace to us, eager to be merciful to us. And so, Lord, as we look at your word today, we pray that you would help us to come to realize that, to know that at the deepest level of our soul. And as we come in here this morning with many griefs, many sorrows, sometimes over our own sins, sometimes over the brokenness of this world, the death and the, the sadness and the fears and so many things that we carry with us, God, we pray today that we would bring them to you. That whatever it might be, whatever might be on our mind, our heart today, that it would be in your hands by the end of this time. That we would bring it to you, that you might be the one who gives us strength and carries our burdens. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. About a decade ago, there was a, a man named Dr. Leon Bender, and he was working at an L.A. hospital, and he was frustrated. He was frustrated because his staff and his doctors, they were not uh, meeting the marks that they had to meet for their hand-washing uh, routines. And, and they were supposed to be at a much higher rate, but they were down to about 80% of people washing their hands at the hospital. That might sound alarming. It's especially alarming when the 
people who are doing the accreditation for the hospital are about to come to do their inspection. And they had tried up to this point many different tactics to motivate people and incentivize people. And, and uh, they knew that hand washing saved lives at the hospital and all of that was out there, but nothing seemed to work. So they decided one day to try a different tactic. They had about 20 of their staff come into one of the rooms and they all put their hands in a sterile Petri dish and they took it off to the lab. And this was right after lunch. Everyone had just eaten lunch and they were supposed to wash their hands after lunch. But the Petri dish would tell. And so they get the results back from the lab and they photographed all the results and they brought everybody in to see the photographs of what was on their hands. And it was an army of bacteria. It was absolutely disgusting. And they knew that these same doctors went on from that meeting and they went in to see patients. And so everybody who was there, they, they were aware of what was happening and, and everybody was just sunken in shame. How could this happen? How could that be on our hands? And, and it was just this real solemn moment. But then it changed something. It was interesting, they decided they're going to take those pictures and put it on the screensavers of every single computer in the hospital. <laughs> and they took the worst of them and put them on the front of, the, of the, the entrance. So these people could see and be reminded, you know what, they went from 80% to 100%. And yeah, they, they went from 80% to 100%. Something changed their behavior. But what was it? And was it right? See, what, what changes human behavior? Have you ever asked yourself that, like in your own life or the life of your friends or your kids or maybe your spouse has got some things you would love for them to change? I don't know, but you probably asked at some point, what actually changes people's behavior? And many of us have tried different things. We, we've tried things that have worked. We've tried things that haven't worked. We've tried things that, you know, you thought maybe knowledge was going to be the thing that would fix it. You would study something a little bit more, try to understand it, and, and by the end of understanding it more, you thought it would change things, and you realized that knowledge by itself didn't actually change it. Or maybe you tried discipline, and you thought, maybe I can get my life together and be disciplined and have a structure, and, and I got a plan, and I'm going to follow the plan and execute the plan, and you bought a little fancy planner that's going to outline the plan for you, and then you realize discipline by itself didn't change it. And then maybe you're like, okay, well, maybe I just need to get real emotional and passionate about it. And so you, you got serious about your issue and you got fired up about it. You're going to attack it. You're going to do it. And then the emotion weared off a little bit or wore off and, and, and you're, you're calm now and nothing really changed. But what about spiritual things? Like It's one thing to try to change something in your life that, that is circumstantial or physical or, or, or economic in your life or whatever it may be, but, but what about spiritual things in your life? How do those things change? How do, how do the things that, that you see in your own soul become different? It's a key question, and God gives us an answer in this text that, that might be a little surprising to some folks. It's one word, repentance. It's repentance. 
And see, we come to this text in Isaiah, we've been walking through the book, and, and we're kind of going quickly in the beginning of Isaiah. We're going to slow down on the back end as we finish out the fall. But right here we see, as Isaiah is writing as a prophet to God's people, he's writing to a people who've been caught with bacteria all over their hands. He's writing to a people who, who thought they could kind of get by by cutting some corners and doing some things, but now they are caught. And the sins that are exposed are, are horrifying as God is exposing them. They're seeing these sins of greed and, and hypocrisy and injustice and all these things, this apathy towards God in their worship. They, they don't care about anything. They're caught. But now the question Isaiah is raising is, what, what do they do? What, what are we supposed to do to change? How, how is God going to change who we are now that we have been exposed? And he gives them one word, repentance. And repentance might sound like this religious word that maybe people who are you know, really high church, holy roller people, they, they throw this word around, or you think of fire and brimstone sermons, or whatever you might think of, but, but it, it really is a powerful word that God gives us as a gift. It's a gift to say, here, here is your way forward. Let's repent. And so I want to look at what that means today. I want to look at, at how he calls us to repentance and how that works. So if you're taking notes this morning, first I want us to look at the nature of repentance from this text. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Now pause right there because Judah has been, uh, they have been warned, they have been told, they have been, you know, they've been said that this is going to come, that if you don't turn away from what's happening, then, then God is bringing judgment. This, this is what's happening in Isaiah, and they continue to resist. They continue to rebel against God. They don't want anything to do with it. In fact, earlier in chapter 30, this is the best, they say, just stop prophesying to us. Stop, stop saying all this stuff. Just, just give us some smooth talk. That's what they say. Give us some, some illusions. In other words, we, we know what you're saying is right, but, but we don't want to hear it. We're, we like what we're doing. We, we are over here successful and prosperous and things are going well. I know you have some concerns, but stop talking to us about our sins. They, they are saying, you know, we... We can live our life by ourselves. They're, they're kind of like your kids when your kids just put their fingers in their ear and say, I, I don't want to listen. I don't want to hear it. I know what you're saying is something I should do, but I don't want to listen. And what does God do? This is amazing. What, what does God do when they continue to push back? He offers again. And he says, look, here, here is the way forward. You, you can repent. And he uses this fascinating word for, for repentance. It's in Hebrew, it's shuv. And, and in Hebrew, it, it's a word that gives this beautiful image of repentance. In fact, this is what it means. It means to go home or to change directions or, or even to change locations. And when it's used of repentance, it means that you're going from one place where you're far from God to another place where you're near Him. You hear that? So to, to shuv, to, to repent, is to move locations. It's to move away from your sin toward God. It, it's the same message that Jesus, this message of repentance, it's what he started with. 
When Jesus came on the scene in the New Testament, he began his ministry with this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's calling them to repentance because that's what the Old Testament prophets did. That's what John the Baptist did. And that's what Jesus did because it's the offer of the entire Bible. God says you can return. You can go from where you are to where I am. Now, Jesus tells a fascinating parable about this in Luke chapter 18. And he talks about two people who were going up to the temple to pray. Have you heard this story before? It's, it's kind of a famous story. It's, it's the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee is, is this uh, icon of religious leadership, right? He, he's the person who everyone looks up to and, and thinks is the greatest. And then you got the tax collector who's like the scum of the earth. Nobody likes the tax collector, not even the tax collector himself. He doesn't like, or nobody likes him, and everybody looks down on him. He's a thief, he's a crook, but they both go up to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee begins to pray, and he opens like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like any of these other people. Right? He looks out on the crowd at the temple, and, and he looks down his nose, and he says, I thank you that I'm not like that person, and that person, and that person, because I do this, and I do this, and I do this. He literally starts to list all the great things about himself as he prays, in all this high religious language. And then he looks over at the tax collector, and he says, and I thank you that I'm not like him. And then the tax collector begins to pray. And the tax collector, who's viewed as the lowest of the low, he says, as he beats his chest in grief and sorrow over his sin, he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus ends the story like this. He says, one of them went down justified, and the other one didn't. He said, one, one was repentant, and the other wasn't. See, what Jesus was saying was just because when you pray and you use religious language, it doesn't mean it's repentant. Just because you, lose, or you use religious words doesn't mean you're actually connecting with God. In other words, you can be religious and not be repentant. In fact, Tim Keller describes it as this difference between religious repentance versus gospel repentance. And I, and I love the way he, he distinguishes these two because he says, first of all, religious repentance is selfish. Religious repentance is, is selfish because you're, you're basically saying, I, I, I am upset, I'm grieved, I'm sorrowful over all the things that I've lost because of my sin. I'm sad because now I've lost my comfort, I've lost this relationship, I've lost this that was wonderful for me, and it's all gone because of my sin. Now I'm going to repent because I'm hoping that I'll get all those things back. Because really what I'm sorrowful over is not God, but me. Do you hear it? What, what I'm sad about in, in religious repentance is not that, that somehow I've grieved God and my sin is wrong in His eyes, but that it's wrong in my eyes, or it's wrong in the eyes of this person. And so I need to restore that relationship for me. You see it? Second thing is, it's not just selfish, but it's self-righteous. I get shocked that somehow I was capable of this. 
And so, because I still think so highly of myself, I'm going to try to, to atone for my sin by doing things myself. So my, my religious repentance is, I got to work, I got to work, I got to work, I got to make up for it, I got to do this, and I got to do that, and I got to make sure that, that I can prove myself to be a good person. And so I'm very active and going and doing and making up for all the mistakes I've ever made. You notice how he describes it in Isaiah? He says it's in your quietness. It's in your repentance and your rest. Very different picture. Because gospel repentance is not about me mustering up enough proof that I really do care about what I did. It's not trying to earn anything. It's simply receiving. Receiving what God has done. And it's that kind of gospel repentance that that truly transforms us. Where it says, I I don't mind if I get all the things back. If I have God, that's enough. I don't mind if if, if I can't do it and I I prove to be who I really am, which is weak and, and failing, as long as I get God. You see that? You see the clear difference between religious and gospel? And and, and so this kind of repentance really changes us, but how do we know that it's gospel repentance? Well, here's a couple things if you want to write them down. First of all, it's oriented toward God, not me. It's oriented toward God, not me. So in Psalm 51, you have the the prayer of David after David is is repentant of his sin with Bathsheba. He writes it down, and, and just think about this for a moment. If your confession of of one of the greatest sins of your life became a song that they sang at church, think about that. But that's what Psalm 51 is. They're singing about their king's greatest sin. And David writes down, what, what does he say? He said, my sin is against you, God, and you alone. David's not saying that no one else was involved. David's not saying that there weren't consequences for what happened or that he didn't sin against somebody else. He's just saying that, God, as I get in your presence and I begin to repent, I realize that you take precedent. That that what I have done is against you and you alone. It is against you primarily. You see that? It's, It's oriented toward God, where religious repentance is oriented towards people. Second thing is it's motivated by love, not legalism. Motivated by love, not legalism. What I mean by that is ask yourself, as you're thinking about repentance in your own life, am am I doing this because I am trying to control the narrative? Am I doing this because I'm, I'm hoping that I can somehow earn the approval of the people that I care about? Am I doing this because I'm hoping God will love me because of what I've done? You see that? that that's legalism. But, but motivation from love is saying that, God, I am overwhelmed by your extravagant love towards me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. I know that you are a merciful God. I know that you are a loving God. I know that what I have done, I can't earn anything back, but I know that you want to give it. And so I lay myself before you. You see that? And the last one is this. It's concerned with the inward not the outward. Again, Psalm 51, David says, Create in me a clean heart. He doesn't just say, God, clean up the outside, but, but I need you to clean the inside of me. I've got things in my heart that are far worse than what's come out of this. God, I need you to deal with me on the inside because God wants our whole self. Now that's a lot, right? You think about that kind of repentance, that, that gospel repentance. How, how in the world can we do that? Well, first, 
I want to say that gospel repentance uh, can't happen outside of community. That the way that God usually works this kind of repentance into us is to have people around us who can say, hey, have you thought about this? Or ask good questions or help us to see where we can't see. And so I'm telling you, this kind of repentance, you can deceive yourself into thinking all by yourself that everything is fine until someone comes into your life and is able to show a mirror and say, this is really what's happening. And this is why around Strong Tower, like we, we try to create ways for us to have community. I realize this is a hard time where there's been a lot of isolation because of the pandemic, but we have to fight for it. You hear me? Like, even though it's difficult, we, we have to fight for it because we can't let ourselves slip into a routine for month after month after month where even if, if we are doing our devotions and, and praying and reading the Bible, we have no one else in our life who's able to speak into our life. So we got to get creative. we got to fight for it, whatever that means for you. I mean, we're talking about grow classes, connect groups, shameless plug, strong tower. That's how that happens. But I'm, I'm telling you, 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 for the sake of your soul, have to fight for community in your life. Like who, who knows you well enough to help you walk through your repentance? Who knows you like that? That's the kind of relationships we need as a church. So that kind of repentance, what, what, what keeps us from it? Uh, let's look at what Isaiah says. He says there's a barrier, and this is the second point, the barrier to repentance. Look at verse 15 again, the ending, what God says. He says, but you were unwilling, and you said, no, we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of the mountain, like a signal on a hill. God makes a promise, and they say no. God says, here's the way forward, and they say, no, we've got it. We, we can do this on our own, right? That's what they're saying. They, they give two examples, two, two excuses. They say, no, 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 we will flee on our own. We, we, we will handle this. We've got horses. We can, we can trust in their strength. They will help us fight. They will defeat the enemy. And God says, all right, you're going to flee, all right. This is not what you think it's going to be. And they say again, no, 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 we're, we're going to go swiftly. We're going we're gonna to do this quickly. and No one's going to even see it coming. Okay, it's going to be swift. Do you hear, do you hear what he's saying? He, he's kind of letting them go down the road that they have decided is going to be the best. And what is the road? It's the road of self-reliance. It's the road saying, we have the strength in ourselves. They think they're going to flee in victory, but he's saying, you're going to flee in defeat. They think they're going to ride in pride, but instead they're going to ride in fear. And it's not going to end the way they think. It's going to end with a single flag standing on a hill all by itself with nobody around. What he's hinting at is the exile, the Babylonian exile that's coming, that's going to move all of them out of their homeland, and it'll be empty. He's saying, how is this going to happen? It's because you're self-reliance. See, the barrier to, to repentance is self-reliance. It's self-reliance. In, in March, or on March 10th, 1804, 
uh, the city of St. Louis went through kind of an identity crisis, if you will. And historians call this Three Flags Day. And if you've heard of Three Flags Day, it's, it was part of kind of the culmination of the Louisiana Purchase. And the Louisiana Purchase was when the French sold a massive amount of land to the U.S. and, and there was lots of complications with that. And so part of the, the land that was sold was including St. Louis. And uh, the, the complication here was they had just received the land from Spain. And so the Spanish hadn't fully turned over the city. They were still kind of running the city, and, and it was just so quick of a turnaround. Nothing had really changed much, and so now they had to pick up the pace because now it was in another hand. And so they decide they're going to they're tell the governor he has just a few days to make the transition. So the Spanish governor goes out to the city square, and he posts a notice saying that there's going to be a transition of power. And the next day, they hold a little ceremony and the governor of Spain, or the Spanish governor who's, who's there locally, he uh, does this little ceremony and then lowers the Spanish flag and raises the French flag. And the French flag flew till noon the next day, and then he lowered the French flag and raised the American flag. So you could imagine the chaos of what that felt like and, and to live there and what that meant for them to, to kind of go from one to the next to the next. And the Spanish governor, he said this that night where, where his flag was lowered. He said, I'm about to surrender this post. The flag which has protected you for 36 years will no longer be seen. In other words, they, they went to sleep under one country and then they woke up in another and by lunchtime, they were in another country. Think about that. You're, you're going from one to the next to the next, but what the governor knew is this. He said, with every change of flag, there's a different authority. With every change of flag, there's someone else who's going to be in charge. And I tell you that to say that true repentance is a changing of flags. It's a changing of flags where, where I lower my flag and God raises his flag. Where I go from saying, I'm in charge, to now, you're in charge. It's what Jesus told us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever noticed that in the Lord's Prayer? It opens up, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus is saying, he's calling us to repentance. He's calling us to say, God, I am no longer in charge of my life. You are in charge of my life. I am no longer the one who calls the shots. You're the one who calls the shots. I'm no longer the one who, who says this is how it's going to happen and this is how I'm going to feel and this is what I'm going to believe. It's you. It's a changing of the guard. It's a changing of the flag. And how do you know that's happened? How do you know you've gone from being self-reliant to, uh, to, to trusting in Him and letting God be the ruler of your life? Well, first, if you're self-reliant, there's going to be regret more than repentance. You hear that? It's going to be more about regret than repentance. You're going to say things like, man, I can't believe this happened. I don't know how we got here. I'm going to lose everything. This is, this is the worst that it could possibly be. And you're overwhelmed with a sense of sorrow, but it's the wrong kind of sorrow. Listen to me carefully. Regret and repentance both have sorrow. But 2 Corinthians says there's a sorrow that leads to repentance. There's a sorrow, a godly grief, as Paul says, that, that is a different kind of sorrow because this kind of sorrow has a different fruit. The fruit is that it's not all about me, but it's about God. 
It's not about how am I going to forgive myself? How am I going to turn my life around? How am I going to do this? In fact, you can't, you can't focus on yourself long enough to make yourself repentant. At some point, you, you have to get off of yourself and, and get to God and, and turn yourself towards Him. That, that's why the word for repentance is literally a turn. It, it's a movement. I'm going from me to God. To God. You hear that? So that, that's the difference between regret and repentance, but it's also not uh, resolution. Resolution is where you, you say, okay, my, I, I've messed up really bad, and I'm going to prove to everybody that, that I really mean business, that I, I have done the hard work, and, and I'm going to line out, these are the things I'm going to do to make up for it. And, and you think that, you know, in my own self, I, I have the power, I have the will, I have the capability to have better habits, to have better thoughts, to have better this or that. And so your resolution is, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure I don't. You get software on your computer, you, you make sure you, you read the right books, you, you talk to experts, you, you do all these things, and maybe none of those things are bad. But it's still you. You hear that? It's still you. I resolve rather than I repent. And the difference is I take it to God. I take it to God. And you know, that this is how you know you're repentant, because you get to the end of yourself and you say, I, I don't have anything to bring. I don't have anything to offer. But God, I'm bringing it to you because you're the one who can change me. You're the one who can bring, as he says here, salvation and strength in my repentance. And it's only you. And when you do that, when you get to that place where you realize, I can't fix it, I can't make up for it, I can't beat it, I can't manage it, I can bring it to God. When you do that, you find God waiting eagerly, eagerly. And this is the last point, the readiness for repentance. Look at verse 18. Therefore, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself, or he rises to show mercy to you. I love this. The Lord's logic is beautiful. Think about it. Judah is unwilling. They absolutely want nothing to do with this. They've resisted and resisted. They've set up ways to make sure they don't hear what God is saying. And what does God do? When they are unwilling, He's waiting. When they're resisting, He, he is waiting to be gracious. He's not waiting to be judgmental. He's not waiting to pour out His wrath. He says, I'm waiting to be gracious to you. And the word for wait there in the Hebrew means an attitude of earnest expectation and confident hope. I love that. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Right? He, he desires all of us to come to Him, and therefore He waits for all of us. But Isaiah goes on to say why he can wait, why he has the ability to slow down and be patient and wait for us to come. In verse 18, he says, For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. See, God waits for us because he's already done the work for us to return. When, when Isaiah says that he's the God of justice, what he's saying is that he is a God who can't overlook sin. 
He is a God who doesn't just turn his eyes the other way and say, you know what, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Come on back in. Let's, let's, let's just pretend like it didn't happen. He's saying, no, God is a God of justice. And so it seems like these two things don't work together, right? It seems like how can he be waiting to be gracious, yet he's a God of justice? It's because when his justice is satisfied, then he waits, as Isaiah says, not to rise for judgment, but rising for mercy. Because when his justice is satisfied, when, when it's been paid for, when, when something has met the requirement, then God is able to rise to give mercy rather than the judgment that he would have to give. And it's what the psalmist says in, in uh, Psalm 85, mercy and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other, right? The way that God is going to do this is in the surprising way of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, where as the poet said in Psalm 85, he gives us this vision of, of the two kissing. It's at the cross. When, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he was exchanging places for us. He was taking our brokenness. He was taking our sin and shame. He was taking our failure and our guilt. He was taking our rebellion, our resistance, and the justice of God was being poured out on his own son for us. For our sinful, stubborn, rebellious hearts, it was poured on Jesus so that every moment of wrath that he endured, even the pain of hell itself, was for us. But not only that he would take our sin, not only that he would satisfy his justice, but that he would give us his mercy, that he would give us himself, that he would give us his righteousness, that he would give us his healing, he would give us his status, right? He's giving up himself to give us himself. That's the God of justice, the God of justice who makes it right in himself. He had to make a way, and the only way that he could make was through himself. And so God makes a way so now he can wait. So now he can wait. Jesus told another parable in Luke chapter 15, famous parable, possibly the most famous ever told. Jesus talks about a young man who comes to his father and asks for his inheritance. Many of us know the story as the prodigal son. And we know the, the, the story goes like this, where he, he takes off this inheritance off to a far land and, and spends it recklessly. Like he's wasteful. He's living wildly, doing all this stuff with the money, and it goes terrible for him. He, he loses it all. He, he finds himself in the middle of the night eating dinner with the pigs. Right? He thought he could be self-reliant. He thought he could do his life on his own. He didn't need anybody else. He didn't even need his father. He could do this by himself, but he found out quickly he couldn't. And there he is at the bottom, eating with the pigs all by himself, nothing left. What's he going to do? He's going to go home. He's going to shuv in Hebrew. He's going to return to his father. And when he returns to his father, this is where the story might get mixed up for some of you. The prodigal son, the prodigal son is not really about the son. It's actually about the prodigal father. Because who in the story is more reckless? That's what the word prodigal means. It, who in the story is more reckless, more extravagant, more, more wasteful than the father? I mean, you think about when, when the son comes back, where is the father? The father is waiting on the porch, looking out on the horizon, anticipating eagerly the return of his son. Not, as Isaiah says, so that he can rise up and give judgment. 
but so that he could rise up and show mercy. So that he could rise up and lavish his love on his son. That he could rise up and show him all the things that, that he was uh, missing out on. And so he looks out on the horizon and he scans to look for him. And therefore, he waits. He waits. And he waits. And then when he sees the sun out on the horizon, the Bible says this incredible scene happens. The father picks up his his robe, and he begins to run towards him. He runs. And in the ancient Near Eastern culture, nobody ran with his social status. That was the thing that, that servants did or slaves did. That, that was for people at the bottom of the social ladder. But here's this man with wealth and status and prestige, and, and he decides, I'm going to run. I'm going to run as fast as I can to go meet my son because I don't care if there's shame that it comes upon me. I don't care what the cost is. I don't care. I've been waiting eagerly. I've been anticipating this moment when he would return, and so I'm going to run and meet him. And he does. And when he catches his son, he catches him off guard because his son, he, he was feeling remorse. He was feeling regret. He, was, he had a resolution written out. This is what I'm going to do to make it up to my father. And he beats him to it and he robes him with his best robe. He, he puts shoes on his feet. He, he kills the fattened calf. He embraces him. He kisses him. He overwhelms his son because his son had returned. He was home. He was safe. He was loved. And now he was changed. Do you see that? Jesus tells that story because it's the story of God's people. The prodigal son's story is the story of us. That God is waiting eagerly, eagerly for us. And as we close out and we're, we're going to move to the table this morning, I, I want you to, to hear this clearly. If you haven't heard anything else, if you find yourself in the place where, where you're overwhelmed with your sin. You're, you're just broken by it, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. I, I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to change. I can't seem to change myself. God says, come. Come to me. And this life of repentance is, is not meant to be this one-time thing, but the life of repentance is your whole life. It's a constant return and return and return. So you might have had to return yesterday and he calls you to return again. You might have to return this morning and now he calls you to return again. It might be 10 years ago. It might be 20 years ago. I don't know where it was, but wherever you find yourself here today, he says, I know you were unwilling. Therefore, I'm waiting. Therefore, I'm waiting. And the moment you come, I will meet you with the greatest grace and mercy you've ever experienced. You've ever experienced. Let's pray.